0: One of the things that we are talking about this morning comes out of Mark chapter six. Uh, this is an interesting text because we're only taking a sliver of it this morning in relationship to the whole narrative. This is the time when Jesus has sent out his disciples and they are going out preaching the gospel of the kingdom and they're representing Christ and they have been covering the territory and when we come to verse 14, it tells us thing, this. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known, and some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, well, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I had beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, is it not lawful for you, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, being John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly." Now this may seem like kind of an obscure text in terms of where you and I live. If I was retitling this, I would probably call it the four challenges of mission and ministry. And the reason for that is because in whole or in part, if you do not experience some of the things that John faced and Jesus was facing here, you're probably not engaged. Uh, There's texts in the scriptures that say, those who desire to live a righteous life will be persecuted. And yet, in America, because of our framework, we find ourselves trying to avoid these things like the plague. That it's easy for us to try to find a comfortable Christianity that fits our lifestyle rather than find a Christianity that transforms our lifestyle. And at the heart of this is a trap that we can all find ourselves in. In fact, as I studied this text this week, It was almost to the point of embarrassment at times as I look over my life to see how much these things affected my life in the most negative way possible. Not that I'd even experienced some of them but I thought I was going to so I'd just bail out of life. I'd avoid them no matter what the cost. When we began to look at this process, I was listening to uh, the Russell Moore Show, it's a podcast and he was interviewing Rick Warren as he reflected on his legacy. Rick Warren, of course, was one of what some would call one of the greatest spiritual leaders uh, out of California, I guess, if I've got, uh, got my bearings. Uh, turned a church that was kind of the model for urban churches, and it's grown to thousands and thousands of people. I think the last, what he mentioned on there is they have well over 50,000 people in different campuses and sites. But it hasn't been without its costs. You know, it all looks good, and all we see is the public persona that people give to us, but as he talked on the podcast, he described a lot of hardship and difficulties. Uh, Recently, probably the most recent one, is because his church decided that they were going to allow women to be pastors and teachers and preachers, as it were, that they got disfellowship from the Southern Baptist Convention to which they belonged. And on this interview, he was talking about the unfairness of life and how he had changed his view over the last three years about the role of women and where that is. But he's caught caught a tremendous amount of flack for, as it were, changing his position and allowing things to evolve, as it were, in his church context. As he talks about it, he says his life at times felt like it's under attack. He's talked about how individuals have misrepresented him and his motives. Uh, he's talked a little bit about individuals trying to manipulate him and to control what he should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing. Uh, doesn't He wasn't speaking that he wasn't accountable to individuals, but that there's all kinds of people, many who aren't even part of the, the makeup and the decision-making, who try to impose their personal convictions upon him. And there are some that even maligned him by attacking him and dealing with, Uh, both internally and externally. Internally, he spoke more of challenges. I believe his wife got cancer and they were trying to deal with that in the midst of all these adjustments and changes that they were trying to make because they felt that's what the Lord wanted to do. But also externally, he talked about some crazy guy on TV had accused him of trying to start a new religion combining Islam and Christianity. I think it was called Chrislam is what he talked about. And he says that there's absolutely no validity or truth to that reality, and yet it's spread around like wildfire. And he felt terribly misrepresented and maligned by people who didn't know what was going on. You know, as I thought about that, I thought, well, you can't really do life in ministry without experiencing that. Uh, Sometimes it's just life. You grow up in any kind of family, and at times you get accused of things that you don't think were your fault. You get treated unfairly. If you're the oldest, you usually get blamed for things that the younger ones did. You go through all kinds of different circumstances that either start crushing you, or in a sense, they make you stronger, or they just make you angrier, and you just start trying to prove everybody wrong. At the heart of all this is this challenge of life, and especially of ministry, that there's these kinds of things come up. I want to put it in the context particularly of life in terms of mission and ministry because often we find that there are things that happen internally and externally to the church that people don't know about often but because I deal with pastors most of the time it's astounding to me not just how the world acts but sometimes how Christians act towards other people in ministry. And John and Jesus become part of this. And the first thing I want you to notice is that this text starts off being about Jesus. It says, when Herod heard of it, I always hate it when people say it, like what in the world does it mean? But obviously he had heard about the disciples going out and spreading the message of the gospel and doing miracles. And and they were representing Jesus. And we talked about how they were able to do the same things Jesus was doing because he simply gave them authority to do it. And so when Herod hears of it, he hears about them going out and preaching this gospel of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I got thinking about how this then turns into a discussion as far as Mark is concerned about John the Baptist. It starts with Jesus, and I'm hearing about this, But because of the rumors that are going around about people trying to figure out who this person is and what's going on, it ends up circling back around to probably John the Baptist isn't probably the best term. John, the one who came baptizing, is probably, we don't want to try to claim some denominational thing on John because he didn't belong to one. But he's the one that came baptizing for the repentance of sins to prepare Israel for their coming Messiah. And as he does that, he is pushing against the grain of the entire culture. Uh, and especially in terms of Herod. But what I want you to notice, first of all, is that there's kind of this misrepresentation about Jesus himself, not by the disciples, but by everybody else. Now, I I was thinking about this, trying to capsulize it in something that's a little more simpler than all the avenues we could go here. Uh, For instance, if you think about contract law, there's three different ways you can misrepresent people. It can be fraudulent, where people are deliberately lying and misrepresenting what's going on. If you live in uh, the business world, sometimes this happens where people are selling a bunch of goods and telling you things that aren't even remotely true about what they're selling and just to get, convince people to spend their money. Uh, there's enough fraud and scammers out there that are doing this all the time with people. And so there's this fraudulent misrepresentation. The second one is negligence where people may actually believe something to be true but it's not accurate, it's not really the whole picture and it's inaccurate because it can't fulfill the things that they're promising. And the last one is what we call innocent misrepresentation where people just are naive, they're they're selling something but they don't know all the facts and they're communicating things that they believe are absolutely true but it's not sufficient to be honest or have integrity with people who are doing it. And we're told that Herod heard of it this message that Jesus and the disciples are spreading around to different regions of the country. And the word, it had become known, is a really powerful word. It literally means it had been spread around deep and wide. It is fully known and it saturates the whole countryside. If you go into any city and they go, hey, have you heard of Jesus? It's like, man, his disciples were here last week. We know all about him and what's going on. You couldn't go anywhere without this being visible and yet when they begin to dip into the the idea of who this is, it's amazing how the discussion, because some are saying, well, we think this is John, the one who came baptizing, that he's risen from the dead. That's why this person, whoever he is, has this power to do miracles. Now, if you read through the scriptures, you're gonna see, you're not gonna have too many records of John doing miraculous things. He did some weird things, and that were kinda weird and wonderful, But that's because he was pushing back on the culture. But the fact that they've suddenly concluded that this Jesus who's going around is John raised from the dead means that they still aren't paying attention. That this is not John at all. This is somebody completely different and they obviously hadn't listened to John's message very well because he was the whole forerunner for Jesus. He pointed him out even to some of the disciples. This is the Lamb of God who's gonna take away the sin of the world. And yet everyone seems that the first thing that he hears is they think this is John, the one who came baptizing. And then there's others who would say, well, I, I don't think it's John, we think it's Elijah. Because in the Old Testament, Elijah was one who could at will do miracles. And he was the one that was had a huge impact in dealing with the cultural idols of Israel and doing miracles that were astounding and would have been back at that time. So, because Jesus and his men can do this, maybe this is Elijah. Well, we're not told to what conviction people believe it, but they're struggling to figure out who Jesus is. And then some of them would even suggest that the idea here is that he's a prophet of old and he's what, I don't know, reincarnated, he's come back to life, we're not told how they're thinking this way. At very least, he's like one of the old prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus and I was as, he was as messed up as we are, I'd be going like, what is wrong with people? I mean, I've sent my men out, I've preached the gospel, I've been healing people, and they think I'm John the Baptist? Like, what is the deal? They think I'm Elijah? Come on, you guys, aren't you reading the billboards? Like, this is Jesus who's coming as the Messiah, the one that Israel looked forward to, and they, can't, they won't do it. They won't connect the dots. Which often tells me is that people will often interpret things based on their own past experience and what they know really well. John had been a six-month forerunner of Jesus, so they understood John but they have just been introduced to Jesus in some respects, but they refuse to adopt it, and I think someone like Jesus would feel really frustrated that his reputation is they can't figure out who he is. I, uh, I've told this story before, but I had a friend of mine, she was a gal that when we went to, lived in Calgary went to the same church, and she was a really good friend. We never dated, nothing like that, but people you know, glued us together and she went to the same Bible college, she went to Bible college in Saskatchewan, I went there afterwards, and so we were really good friends. She ended up dating my brother and marrying him, and, which was okay, I'm, I'm okay with that, that's not a problem. But, at their, but people had put us together so much that uh, at their wedding, I think it was her brother introduced them, and my brother's name is Mark, so it's Ruth and Mark, accidentally introduced them as Brad and Ruth rather than Mark and Ruth and they had a whole number of gifts that were had Brad and Ruth on it, not Mark and Ruth. Now, I would perfectly understand if he got a little annoyed at that. Uh, in fact, it wasn't that long after they started going to a different church because he just doesn't want to live in my shadow and he doesn't need to. He's a brilliant on fire Christian guy and I love my brother to bits and there's no reason but nobody wants to live in other people's shadow and yet in spite of this whole marketing process that Jesus goes through with all the disciples and healing people and everything else people are going like I don't know who this guy is he's still living in the shadow of John and he's living in the shadow of Elijah and all the prophets and it's kind of like how come you guys don't get this now, we won't go into it, but it's apparent in this that they, underst- they misunderstood his purpose because John the Baptist came baptizing for repentance to prepare for Jesus. That's not Jesus' purpose. He's the one that's going to forgive people, not to prepare them for something else. He's sort of the end goal. He's what John had in mind, and so they clearly don't understand Jesus' purpose. But they clearly, by comparing him to Elijah and older prophets, don't understand his full role as Messiah because they think he's just another glorified messenger from God. And so they not only don't understand his purpose or his role, but the one thing that doesn't get commented here is his message. There's nothing said like what he's talking about and what the message of Jesus is, that he's preaching the gospel of repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is at their doorstep. You know, and it's it's amazing to me, although I would say i probably experienced this all through my ministry, is that no matter how many times you tell something to people, sometimes they will never get it. They're always doing this comparison thing. I've talked to enough pastors. In fact, I talked to one guy, one young guy who's been in the ministry three years in Michigan, um, who the church is like, I don't know, they're just being a bunch of knuckleheads. Um, He is ready to quit because what happened in the church is that there was an individual, uh, actually his associates, wife's, brother or something started a petition in the church because the Constitution and bylaws allow them to start petitions if they have a grievance and they started this petition to complain about him and some other things that he was doing. Kind of like, boy, that sounds like a healthy place. You know, it's, I, I, I have this checklist now that of places that And I'm not saying these things are unhealthy by themselves, but I'm coming close to it. Everything is ruled by Robert's rules of order. Not that it can't be helpful, but it's got more authority than the bylaws and the Constitution and the Bible. Uh, They have allowed to make petitions, which to me is like the perfect setup for division. If you wanna divide people, allow them to start petitions and do secret meetings and all kinds of other stuff. And the elders just sat around and passively let this go on and didn't deal with it. They verbally said they support him, but they're not doing anything to show that. And he's like completely uh, becoming a victim. And his reputation is being smeared about what he, you know, literally the one accusation, well, he's a Calvinist, and so we can't have him preaching here. Well, it may not be the culture of the church, but... They're misrepresenting him, and he's feeling it, and it basically comes down, they just, I don't think these people trust me. I said, well, don't take that personally. They obviously don't trust one another. If this is the way that they try to deal with issues, they obviously don't trust one another. And so we're working through. But it's a horrible thing to be misrepresented. You would know that maybe when it came to growing up. You know, if you have siblings, they will tend to misrepresent you to mom and dad if something goes wrong. You might have been in a workplace where you were misrepresented by somebody who said you failed to do something that you did, but it was somebody else's fault, and yet you're catching it on the teeth because you're the one that's being blamed. There are lots of things that get into this misrepresentation, and Jesus has to deal with all of it. The second thing, as it slides into this discussion about John, the one who came baptizing, is the manipulation. Now, if you follow the text, it says, when Herod, verse 16, heard of it and kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself, now this is kind of a parenthetical side issue here in terms of dealing with Jesus. He had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So what happens in this particular context is that Herod tries to manipulate the situation by having John arrested because John is challenging him about a moral issue related not to his own personal convictions but the law. And so the way that... Herod deals with this is he controls or manipulates the situation by having him thrown in prison and takes away his public for, platform to call Herod out on his moral indiscretions. Now, it doesn't have to be that way all the time, but I want to s- propose to you that people will do this all the time. We live in a culture that... Is trying to manipulate and to control everybody Uh, I don't care what labels you put to it we've got all kinds of ethnic unrest and we've got kind of the new cultural thing called woke that's trying to figure out a way to be heard in terms of our culture but we know that a lot of forms of discussion turn into gaslighting where people are literally berating and bullying people into agree with their position if they happen to disagree we live in an environment where the idea of manipulation and control is kind of at the top of the list. If you don't experience this, then I don't, know, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how you can live in this world and not feel that somehow, whether you watch the TV, listen on the news, try to buy something at the corner store. I don't know how you wouldn't feel this. But we are in a culture where everyone is trying to find control and to manipulate it to force other people to adopt their convictions about how we ought to live and accept people. And so the question is, is that in this particular situation, Herod has enough power to get John arrested and thrown in prison. And these situations, and we would contextualize it this way, these are people around us who have seemed to intentionally try to undermine our ministry or our life. They're they're trying to get in the way to stop us from doing what we're doing when they're the ones doing the wrong stuff. We seem to be committed to righteousness and and living above board and with integrity, but we're the problem. And so, when it comes to this idea of mission and ministry, certainly that Jesus had to experience and what John was experiencing, is he's running smack into people who aren't going to accept it and they're trying to manipulate the situation to pull the rug out from underneath John and maybe you felt it yourself. I don't know, have you ever been treated unfairly at work? Do your kids go to school? Elementary school or junior high or high school where the system is trying to manipulate their heads to accept worldly values and philosophies? I thought when I, like our kids were in high school when We were back in Portland, we weren't happy with the public school, private schools were really expensive for us, we ended up sending them to a Catholic school, which was fine. The only time we really ran into a problem is when the religion teacher started taking pot shots at evangelicals and showing how dysfunctional they are and with my kids sitting in the room and my son came back and complained and I went, oh really, okay, well let's go have that conversation. So I showed up at a parent-teacher interview and I'm kinda like, well I hear you're uh, sort of taking the high ground and smashing on evangelical Christians. I said, my son's not really interested in being in your class since you're prejudicial. He says, well no, I'm not really prejudicial and we kind of went from there. That was, at the time, that was kind of the worst thing I dealt with. That doesn't sound quite as weighty as what our families and our kids are doing in the school systems today sometimes even in the work world. We are constantly being barraged with people trying to manipulate our minds that we have to be forced to accept and welcome things that aren't part of our value system, just like they were trying to force John to shut up about his value system. The advantage that John had is that Herod was mesmerized by him. He feared him because he was convinced that he was a holy man and he was righteous and doing the things of God but he just boggled his mind completely with the messages he was talking about. And he couldn't reconcile it. When you get into situations where you feel like you're being manipulated, I wanna take us back to the thoughts I had before. You either think that it's fraudulent where they're deliberately lying and trying to take me out of my life and out of my rhythm, and that's exactly what Herod was doing with John. Sometimes we might give them the benefit and say, It's sort of negligent fraudulent behavior or negligent misrepresentation. And in that sense, hey, they may not mean it, but they don't understand all the facts. They're buying into gossip that people are saying about me, and that's what they're coming at me with, but they don't have all the facts. And some people just are innocent in the sense of this idea of manipulation because they absolutely think it's the right thing to do. To some degree, what the question doesn't really matter what they're doing. It really matters to what we're doing. And in the midst of mission and ministry, we're going to run into individuals who misrepresent us and that try to manipulate us to doing something that either they want or someone else wants. And the question is, how are we going to respond to that? Now, John didn't have any choice. He got thrown in prison, and that seemed to end his public ministry. But the question is, while most of us may not get thrown in prison, although there may be days in the future that being a Christian may have its little more tipping point to it, the the, the issue is, how do we respond to it? There are people who will go to great lengths to try to force us to conform to their demands and expectations because our life and ministry conflicts with their values and they're often the values of the world. Herod and Herodias... We'll get to her in a minute. She was like a torch on fire to go and take John out. The only protection John had was Herod, believe it or not. Like, it's hard to even imagine. It's kind of the better of two evils. You don't want to be on Herodias' bad side, but Herod is your buddy? That doesn't make sense to me at all. But you notice that even though Herod and Herodias are doing this, this is kind of what the Pharisees and the scribes did. They misrepresented, and if you don't believe me, you just read through the Gospels, they misrepresented God. They had created their own religion on top of the law, and they had tried to manipulate everybody to conform to their rules and regulations. We see Jesus slamming against this all the time. And it is possible that we can create religion around the pure relationship with Jesus so that even as Jesus accused the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, your traditions and rules and regulations are keeping people from God. And I've run into churches where their rules and policies and regulations and traditions are literally keeping people from God. And you can tell because it's shrinking and getting smaller and it's caving in on itself because people somehow have an abhorrence to that kind of misrepresentation and manipulation. And what we always have to be careful with is we've got to be coming back to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he needs to be the centerpiece of people's lives. Not our personal convictions, not our religious traditions, not our practices or our programs. It is Jesus alone that needs to be the centerpiece of Christianity. But unfortunately it doesn't stop there. Because the next one is being maligned. Sometimes we feel like we can deal with the misrepresentation, we can ignore it, sometimes the manipulation, we can ignore it, but the thing that's really painful is when people start maligning us. Gary P- uh, Preston from Boulder, Colorado, tells a story of being in a church where there's one family that had this reconstruction project on their home that they wanted to do, so they hired a contractor, and I don't know if the contractor was part of the church or not, but it turned into a nightmare. And the reason for it is they started disagreeing on what was going on. Both parties started calling him for help. Of course, they kept sharing all the things that they saw and didn't see in the other person. In fact, he got into this when the homeowner once said, said this to him more than once. Not only does this contractor do shoddy work, but I've heard stories about how unethical he has been in paying his employees in the past see when people get ticked they start pulling in their own rumors and using his leverage for their own case and he gets into this he said the the contractor was guilty of the same kind of talk and then eventually he got sucked into it where he was started talking about stuff that was all hearsay and he got himself in trouble trying to help these two figure this thing out and people had to get in his face and challenge him and say look what are you doing? And he had to sort of repent of the whole thing and get it fixed. But he said, Conflict has a way of growing a small snowslide into a full-scale avalanche. On its way downhill, it can sweep victims into its wake, a conflict that has potential to mar the integrity of combatants on both sides. That happens as each side seeks to garner support of its position, making exaggerated statements, shading the truth, and punging the motives of others. See, that's what happens when we start feeling misrepresented, when we start feeling people manipulating us, because then it escalates into maligning other people. It ends up literally being personal attacks on the people around us. And at some point, people give up. It doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not. They just sort of drop all the guns and they go to war because they're not gonna let another Christian get an advantage of them. But engaging mission and ministry in the brokenness of the world that we live in sometimes means facing this kind of thing. Where people slander and gossip about us and sometimes tell untruths. The word malign means to defame or slander or a smear campaign or speak ill of someone. And in this particular text we're told that Herodias held a grudge against John. Now If you really want to know what that means, it's followed up immediately by saying she was trying to put him to death. That's a fairly significant grudge. I mean, we have grudges, and we sort of resort to the slander and the gossip and all that kind of manipulation and control and misrepresent them, because all we would really want to do is wreck their character and their reputation, and it'll look after itself sometimes. But she, like, really got ticked off at him and held a grudge to the point that she was actively planning constantly how to get this guy dead because he simply spoke against the moral injustice that he and uh, she inherited in marrying one another because she was another man's wife. By the way, I can't help but come to that point in the text and go, it's amazing how God's servants at times become the victims of people who are literally turning uh, molehills into mountains. I mean, if this doesn't sound unfair to you, I don't know what does. John is the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus described him as probably the greatest man that will ever live because of that very privilege that God had given to him to be the forerunner of Jesus. And here he is now the victim of a Herod and his wife, who holds a grudge against him, not only throw him in prison, but she's going to do everything she can to get him killed. I don't know about you, but we might be tempted to step back and go, like, why would God allow this to happen? Well, you have to come back next week for that one, but anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but this is the kind of stuff that we, exp- because we are living a very broken and messed up world. Sometimes we have this theology that we think and ho- or at least hope that people are basically good and they're reasonable. And lots of times we can have reasonable and respectful discussions with people. But there are people out there that are out to destroy people. I mean, probably the greatest is all the scams that are going on in our world. People are scamming older people out of their money. They're ripping people off. There's... there's IT hacking going on between countries. I mean, it's, we're probably drowning in all of this manipulation and control that's going on in our world. It could be overwhelming if you think about it. But we have to realize there are people who have such animosity towards others that they will resort to personal attacks on the character and credibility of others to shame them or malign them, their reputation. I... I think I've told you, there's enough new people here who may not have heard this story when I was pastoring in Portland. They had a rummage sale and one lady came up to me and showed me a picture, some of you might remember this, a picture of it looked like Jesus standing in a garden getting ready to knock on a door. And she came up to me and she goes, Brad, what do you think the author had in mind here? And I'll tell you, I deliberately went, Brad, don't go into a 20-minute exegesis on this. Just keep it simple. And if she wants to know more, then... She'll ask you, so just like, keep it short, keep it concise. This isn't Sunday morning. So I said, well, I guess probably it depends on whether he had Revelation 3 in mind or John 10. And she looked at me for a minute and went, oh, okay, and walked off. And I went, "Ah, way to go, Brad. You did it. Month and a half later, I was driving in the van with her and her husband. Some other people were going up north to happen to be a court case. He was driving, I was standing next to him and she's sitting in the seat behind him and all of a sudden she goes, hey Brad. I said, yep. And she goes, Did, has anyone ever questioned whether you should be a pastor in ministry? I said, well, yeah, my wife wondered about that when we got married. I mean, it was kind of like, what do you, this is not what I want to do. And she goes, no, 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 I'm serious. Has anyone ever questioned whether you should be a ministry? I looked over at her husband, he goes, don't look at me, dude. Like, I got nothing to do with this. So I swung around, and I said, uh, what's going on? I feel like I'm missing something. She says, you remember when I brought, we had that rummage sale, and I brought the picture to you, and I asked who it was, and I said, and I always try to get ahead of these things, because if I don't, you're in trouble. And I said, yep, you came and asked me about that, and I said, my propensity is to give you a 20 minute sermon on all the different nuances of what it was, but I wanted to be really considerate, and I thought, just keep it really simple, and and then if you have more questions, you'd answer it. So I said something like, depends whether you had Revelation 3 or John 10 in mind. Is that what you recall? She says, yep. And I said, okay. She says, I've never been more humiliated in my entire life. And I'm going, okay you're gonna have to help me i don't get it she goes well i have no idea what revelation 3 or john 10 is about so i felt as stupid as a little kid and you didn't help me what do you do well you apologize and i said well that clearly wasn't my intent i literally was trying to be considerate but she concluded from that that i should never be in ministry again because i was so rude and disrespectful it's gonna happen, and I know people and Christians who will never ever share the gospel, they'll never get involved in ministry because they're so terrified that someone might re- represent them wrong, or they'll, they'll get accused of doing something inappropriate that they'll, they'll just avoid ministry like the plague. They'll just hurl up in their own little cocoon and they're more worried about their reputation. In fact, as I was growing up, I convinced myself that I don't want to dishonor Jesus by making a screw-up or a mistake. So the less that I do and the less I get involved, then the less chance there is to do that. And there's Christians in all kinds of churches that that's their exact mindset. We're not going to volunteer, not going to get involved, I'll show up and do whatever. But I'm, not, I'm going to do as little as possible because I don't need any of this. Most of us have had enough of that when we were growing up, whether our siblings made fun of us and ridiculed us for our looks, that we were ugly or fat, or that our skills would never amount to anything, or that you don't have the skill or the ability to do anything. They might condemn us because we didn't know how to do it as well as somebody else, or whatever it happens to be, but we've already had our barrage of those things, and we will avoid it at all costs, and so the idea of being on mission for Jesus doesn't make sense to us because if it means that I might be misrepresented and it means that someone might try to manipulate and control me and force things on me and create that kind of conflict and even malign me, not doing it. I know, because I've been there and done that. But the problem is is that it's not driven out of a noble sense of honoring Jesus, it's driven out of a fear and terror of what people think it's, it's a fractured self-image that hasn't understood the value of God saying, I sacrificed my son for you, and you're my child, and I love you. And I've forgiven you everything that you need to worry about ultimately, and you're my child, and you will, I'll never let you go. But somehow that doesn't connect, because when we were growing up, our mother or father or our kids or siblings or whatever had ridiculed us and made fun of us and made mocked us and condemned us to such an extent that we don't hear his voice, it doesn't make any sense. And unfortunately, the end result of all this for John was that he got martyred. We already know that from the text because it had already happened. And we live in a world where people actually get martyred for their faith. We could go story after story of people who've stepped into unreached people groups and been any, in, in all different parts of the world where they have been persecuted and suffered a lot of pain and agony and even faced death because of their commitment to Jesus. And most of us would sit here this morning and go, Well, I, I don't, no matter how hard I try, there's no way I'm envisioning that happening to me because we live in a free country that's built on Christian principles. Well, hang on to that thought as long as you can. But I want to flip this a little bit to make sure that we understand sort of the theological implications of what Jesus has asked us. Because whether you face martyrdom from the world or not, Jesus said, if you really want to follow me, you need to deny self, take up your cross and follow me daily. Paul picked up on that in Romans chapter 8 where he said, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's a sense from a theological perspective that we are to martyr the things of the flesh in our lives so that we can live for Christ. And the reason why many Christians will never get to the point that they'll share the gospel with someone else, they may never be on mission and very, will only step into the safest ministries possible, is because they haven't, as it were, put to death the things of the flesh that afflict their self-worth and their significance and their security because it's still anchored in what other people think and what other people say about them. And the criticisms that other people say, it's not built into the person of Jesus who died for them. And so rather than waiting for someone to execute you in a prison cell, Jesus says, listen, if you really want to understand mission, you want to understand the ministry, the only way that's going to take place is if you die to self, is that if, as Paul says... You put to death the things in your life through the power of Jesus so that you can be free to live on mission and ministry. And even when you're facing misrepresentation and manipulation and people maligning you, and even if they threaten you and your character, you can still live on mission because my sense of self-worth and security and significance is built wholly into the person of Jesus. There is a, uh, Oswald Chambers made this statement. And he's using metaphorical language here, but he says, God can never make me wine if I object to the fingers he uses to crush me. So he's talking about the issue of how does God mold and change my life so that I'm usable and I grow more mature in him? How can I be wine that people drink and they taste the Savior, so to speak? If God would only crush me with his own fingers and say, now my son and daughter, I am going to make you broken bread and poured out wine in a particular way and everyone will know what I'm doing, that would be great. But when he uses someone who is not a Christian or someone I particularly dislike or some set of circumstances that I said I would never submit to and begin to make these the crushers, I object. I must never choose the scene of my own martyrdom, he says. Nor must I choose the things God will use to make me broken bread and poured out wine for his glory. His own son did not choose. God chose for his son that he should have a devil in his company for three years. That's Judas, by the way. If you're we say, I want angels. I want people better than myself. I want everything to be significantly significantly from God. Otherwise, I cannot live the life or do the thing properly. I always want to be gift-edged. Let God do as he likes. If you are ever going to be wine to drink, you must be crushed. Grapes cannot be drunk. Grapes are only wine when they've been crushed. I wonder what kind of coarse finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you, and you have been like a marble and escaped it. You are not ripe yet, and if God has squeezed you, then wine that came out would have been remarkably bitter. Let, go, let God go on his crushing because it will work his purposes and his purposes only. There's a lot of people who have dropped out of mission and ministry because they have never seen the circumstances or the people that have God allowed in their life as his way of refining their own character. They've rebelled against God because I'm not putting up with this person's misrepresentation I'm not going to deal with the criticisms and the slander. In fact, there's hordes of people who have disowned the church because I'm not going to live with a bunch of hypocrites. I wonder as we're here this morning as we see that Jesus had to deal with this misrepresentation, that John, of anyone in this whole story, had to deal with the maligning, the manipulation, and even martyrdom. How you and I would respond to that. In fact, maybe the question is this week, how are you responding to that? Because maybe you've experienced some of this stuff this week. It might not have been under the cloak of mission and ministry. It might have been life at work. It might have been at school or with a neighbor. It might have been your own spouse or your kids. And we can give power over to people or we can surrender to the power in the presence of Jesus. I don't know where you're at this morning But these things can destroy us if we don't allow Christ to sustain us. Father, we ask that you will do something in our heart that helps us to live above the people and the circumstances, whether it comes from people in the world or sometimes comes even as we would interpret it from other Christians. We've tried to ignore those things and we've tried just to sort of push the pain down and ignore it and lock it in a spiritual safe down deep in our heart to try to not have to deal with it. We can't just wish it away and we'd love for you to just snap your fingers and it would disappear, but Father, the beginning of mission and ministry is allowing the gospel and the power of Jesus to bring cleansing and freedom in our own heart and soul of things that have cluttered it up for years. Because most of us know it's almost impossible to be on mission and do ministry when we're spiritually disabled. Sometimes we can develop a martyr's attitude where we're always the victim of everyone and everything and it becomes the perfect excuse not to take steps of faith and get involved. But there's lots of us that have been genuinely wounded by people around us. Father, we can either give in to that or we can stare into the face of Christ and we can allow him to rebuild and heal our sense of worth and value and significance and security. Father, help us not to pull ourselves up by our own bootstrips but, but to bow before your throne of grace and allow you to bring healing and transformation in our own heart that gives you the glory and helps us to be on mission. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.